Hi, this is Michelle Lasley with Balance Shared, a space where I truly believe we are better together. My guest today is Jessica Williams. We sat down in May 2020 at the beginning of the global pandemic. In the time since this interview completed, Jessica has accepted a position as Chief Communications Officer for Days for Girls, an international nonprofit that truly focuses on lifting girls up. The link to Days for Girls is in the show notes. The rest of this interview focuses largely on Jessica's pivot from the superwoman to on-the-rise solutions and all the lessons that she has to share with identifying your super strengths and how to pivot when life throws you curveballs. My guest today is Jessica Williams. She uses the pronouns she, her, hers. Jessica is the founder and CEO of On The Rise Solutions, an organization dedicated to empowering women in business. On The Rise Solutions provides consulting, training, keynote speaking, executive coaching, and live events to support business women and the organizations they work for. Her organization was once known as the Superwoman Project, and then she ran into a roadblock. DC Marvel did not want that name to continue as it conflicted with Superman, and the irony is not lost. After many months fighting to preserve sanity, Jessica conceded. On stage at the third annual Superwoman Summit, she said, I might have cried and stomped and threw fits in the process. It felt like someone was threatening to take away my baby. Eventually, I realized that what makes our community special isn't the brand, but the women we serve and the mission we care so deeply about. Ultimately, Jessica is on a mission to support the rise of women in business. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So we've known each other uh, in like the periphery for a couple of years. I was working at a nonprofit and you were working in another vein, helping to support organizations promote, um, well, a lot of it was like what I saw was like job listings, but I think it was more than that. And then you pivoted and you shifted to supporting women in business. And you work a lot with like people in the tech industry and various things. And so I was curious, why do you like working with women? Mm. Well, for me, it's a personal mission and calling. Uh, and it goes back to my roots and my childhood, which we can get into. Um, but I just felt like a lot of my life experiences had to add up to mean something. And for me, that inspiration hit uh, about a decade ago, or a little over a decade ago now, uh, that I needed to do something to support women and empower women. And Everything I did uh, from going to graduate school, becoming a certified yoga instructor, a certified life coach, to my career working for other companies, um, always in the background for me was how am I going to uh, pivot at some point and start working to support women? What is that going to look like? And what are the resources that I need to make that happen? So the women you work with, what kind of jobs do they usually have? Most of them are mid-level managers or executives. Uh, so they're either like a manager, director, or a VP level. Um, they work at, you know, small to big companies. Uh, and I do work with some entrepreneurs and help them uh, with their business, their operations, marketing, sales, business development. Awesome. So in all that, then you decided you wanted to start this event because like, as I think we can 
we both notice like events are a really amazing, powerful way to bring people together centered around a really beautiful topic, whatever it is, right. It could be a sporting event. It could be an empowering weekend. And so you decided to create a weekend event. Yes, I did. And, um, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I think, (laughs) um, running an event of the scale that we, that we've grown to, or or even that we started out at the same size we are now. So I I went big right out of the gate. Um, We were the first year we were a two and a half day event. And now we're over a week long of event programming and parties throughout the city of Portland. Um, We bring in over 250 women from around the world, 40 speakers, over 50 sponsors and exhibitors, 30 volunteers, uh, so many partners in the community to help make this event happen. Um, And I have a very small team that helps me with this. So um, it has been one of the most challenging things I've ever done, but also one of the most rewarding. Awesome. And this year in October is going to be, what is it like the fifth one? I can't remember. Fourth. Okay. Mm Four. What dates are those scheduled for? October 17th and 18th, uh, which is Saturday and Sunday over the weekend. And uh, this event used to be called the Superwoman Summit, um, which will still get you there if you Google Superwoman Summit. But um, On the Rice Summit is our new brand name, which, as you mentioned, we had to pivot to uh, last year because of uh, DC Comics. Um, But OnTheRiceSummit.com is the website. And then this year we have four tracks. Uh, we have a track devoted to career and professional development, one uh, for leadership skills, the other for equity, diversity, and inclusion trainings, and then the final one is for female entrepreneurs. And so um, there's a variety of, of, of things to choose from. And then we have inspirational keynotes and parties and workshops, um, again, all throughout the city and at the main event over the weekend. Um, right now with the pandemic, I've got everything a little bit on hold. I have um, held back on marketing uh, and sales just because, uh, you know, we're not really sure how things are going to unfold. So I'm just kind of waiting to see. Mm. But right now I'm just assuming that uh, one way or another, this event will happen. It'll happen in the fall or it'll be rescheduled for the spring, uh, depending on what happens. At the time of this recording, we are in May of 2020. So we're a couple months off from when you will hear this. So we'll have all the updated information in the show notes uh, when this airs. Uh, So why were you called to call it the Superwoman Summit to begin with? Mm. Why did that name? Yeah. Yeah. I, well, as a, I've been in marketing and sales my entire career and I wanted something sticky, something that women would remember for better or for worse. Um, some women didn't like the name and that was okay. I wanted something that was really inspirational and big and encompassed this idea that, uh, there is so much more out there for us if we go for it. And if we get the information and resources, uh, that we need to, to make it happen. And so, um, yeah, we called it the Superwoman Summit the first year. Um, the name of my business was the Superwoman Project. I had a podcast called the Superwoman Chronicles. So it was all the, themed under the Superwoman brand. <laughs> and you had this really beautiful logo of wings that reminded me a lot of Wonder Woman, but it was, you know, stylized a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, um, my, my graphic designer uh, made that Gosh, it's been four years now, four or five years ago. And uh, we were able to keep the wings uh, when we rebranded. So that was good. (laughs) Nice, nice. So one of the things that I've seen you work on is like helping people identify their superpowers, for example. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that's one of the greatest challenges that people face in their professional development is actually figuring out what they're good at. And it turns out that when we do work that we're good at, we enjoy it. And (laughs) when we do work, we're not so great at, we tend to not enjoy it. So if you're at work and you're feeling exhausted and depleted and drained, then I encourage you to look at the activities that you're doing and how good are you with those activities? Are they your strengths or are they your weaknesses? Are they your superpowers? You know, And if they aren't, then you need to find work that really helps you use your greatest strengths, your superpowers. What are some of your favorite tools to be able to help people identify what their superpowers are? Yeah. So uh, StrengthsFinder is my favorite, just kind of online assessment. It's pretty cheap and it gives you so much what I recommend my clients do is take it and print it out and then highlight the keywords that really resonate with them and then start to work with that and create uh, statements that maybe you put also into your resume or your LinkedIn or your cover letter that really start to tell this brand or this story of who you are, right? And explains what your like superpowers are if you as if you were a superhero, right? And you were coming in to save the day. Um, so that's one thing I do. I also just have people think back to a time in their career where where they were feeling a sense of satisfaction. Um, They were entering a state of flow. And for those of you who aren't familiar with state of flow, flow is that state that you get into where you lose track of time and you feel energized by the work and inspired by the work. And for me, I feel that way when I'm writing, like time just slips by when I'm writing. I find that um, really stimulating and energizing. Um, For others, it might be project management or it might be leading teams. You know, whatever it is for you, you need to figure out what puts you into a state of flow, those activities, and then look at those activities and go, what about those activities are you good at? Are you, if you're a good project manager, what is it that you're, what makes you a good project manager? Is it your attention to detail? Is it your, um, your ability to um, foresee the future and predict opportunities and threats coming down the pipeline? What it is, right? Mm-hmm. And write that down and start to really like tease out those, uh, those superpowers that you have that are unique to you. Um, and obviously I work with clients over months and months sometimes to really iron these out because some of us, can't see it right away. It takes a lot of uh, self-development and and self-work and reflection to really uncover that. And there's so many layers too, sometimes like we might have it figured out and then X number of years later, we peel back another layer that gets deeper. All right. So what are your top five Mm -hmm. strengths? Oh, my top five strengths. I'm trying to remember. Um, (laughs) It's been a while since I took it. I took it in graduate school. My top, my number one is strategic. Mm. And then I have woo, um, which means I'm really good with people, which, you know, I can look back on my career and go, I was in sales and marketing my entire career. That makes sense. Um, I also, an a, a great inputter, that's a word in, in the strengths finder and a researcher. And I think the other one was empathy. Um, I'm not positive. I had to go back and check. <laughs> have you unlocked your full 34? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Uh, okay. My top five is Input, intellection, learner, deliberative, and belief. Okay. So you, you're very familiar with StrengthsFinder. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I found it in 2011. A coworker had shared it with me. And 
it at the time in the job that I was working, there was pieces of it that were very strategic, very much learning and whatnot. And then there was a piece of it that was slowly, the role was being asked to be more out. And I have unlocked my 34 strengths and this is, um, we can have, we'll have more information that in the show notes and definitely reach out if you want to know more. My 34th strength is woo. Oh, wow. <laughs> he knows me and they know the great strategy I provide. So it's in the name. That's it. <laughs> Again, that was a really long story. <laughs> That's all good. I love it. Thank you for diving into that. So I want to take a quick break. And when we get back, I want to, uh, start off with how you balance your your work roles with your other roles absolutely welcome back so you are also a mom and a wife yeah, I'm a mom and a wife. I've got three children. I I birthed one and I'm the stepmother of two boys that are 17 and 12 now. Oh my gosh. Wow. So uh, sometimes uh, families like mixed families like that can get a little complicated. Do all the kiddos live with you all the time or is there other complications? So it started off one week on, one week off. And as the boys are older now, um, the oldest is with us full-time. The youngest is with his mom full-time. And then our our youngest together is a girl and she's, uh, she'll be three in July. So she's a little over two and a half. Yeah. So what's that like? What is, what is a day, a a normal month like for you? (laughs) Um, a lot of emotion, um, I think starting a business and having, and my daughter was one when I started just all of that in the same year was like a recipe for (laughs) stress and anxiety. Um, so yeah. Um, you know, day to day life is weren't that easy and, you didn't used to know that so well. And then most people probably don't know it as well as you do. There might be some people obviously in your industry or your field that know it as well, but that is an area where you probably have some superpowers and you don't need to downplay that or make that small. You definitely need to um, you know, build that up on your resume, cover letter, LinkedIn, whatever you're doing uh, as a career, you know, in your career as a professional. One of the things that happens in business, every business has a natural cycle, right? And I've seen this diagram before where you take a look at organizations. This particular uh, chart was talking very specifically about nonprofits, but I think it's applicable in most organizations. If you take a look at 10 years, right? You've got like an uptick and then things sort of level out. And then if you want to keep going, you usually have to do, you have to kind of reinvent yourself or you could potentially like dwindle out and not exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so every business, whether it's three months, five months, five years, 10 years, somewhere along the way, you have to pivot. And you, for example, had to pivot when, when you decided to change your name. That's an example of one way that we have run into these roadblocks. So I'm curious. Well, first of all, when you switch to the name On The Rise Solutions, because like, you know, I saw that this thing was happening, right? And then some time had passed. And then all of a sudden you were On The Rise Solutions. And I actually got chills when I saw that name. Because I kind of think that that might speak to your underlying mission, maybe a little bit more perfectly. Oh, yeah, I agree. I felt the same way. (laughs) I felt like, you know, at first 
I felt like the universe was forcing me to do something I didn't want to do. Um, but I kept telling myself, I'm going to see the gift in this at some point. And, you know, once I get past the grieving of having to make this shift, um, and do all the work. And that really is the gift is that I think the new brand is grown up. I think it's uh, more inclusive for all types of individuals. And I think it really does uh, do a much better job of encompassing the work I do with corporate women and corporations. Um, so I've been thrilled with the new brand myself. How did you land on that name? Well, it was a process. <laughs> um, and I've done this uh, many times uh, throughout my career and when it comes to branding. And I, uh, what I do is, because I, I work visually, I take big post-it notes and I put them on the wall in my office with lots of markers. And I just start drumming out keywords that I think are interesting. And um, normally I'll have like one post-it note with an adjective list and one with a verbs list and one with statements. And then as I start to come up with ideas, I write them down and then go and research them online and uh, make sure that no one else is using them. I go and check the trademark database and do a, an exhaustive search to make sure that there are no trademarks now. I've learned that. You've got to do that. Um, otherwise, you don't want to have to be forced to rebrand like I was. Um, and so, you know, do a lot of research and then uh, make sure the domain's available and then sit on it for a week or two and talk to my friends and my colleagues and my family and get their opinion. Like, what do you think? Um, and some of my closest people in my network. And then, uh, and then once started something like for, in this case on the rise started to stick, uh, for me and started to feel really good, then I was ready to move forward. Um, but it definitely took me months and months of work. I think I spent over a thousand dollars last year, just buying out domain names and then not using them. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I know because I was like, oh, I really like. Thank you for listening to this podcast. This is Michelle Lassley with Balance Shared, a space where I truly believe we are better together. Hi, this is Michelle Lassley with Balance Shared, a space where I truly believe we are better together. My guest today is Caroline Connor. She uses the pronoun she, her, hers. Caroline is a wine teacher based in Lyon, France. Originally from California, Caroline is all about making wine fun and accessible. She takes the snob out of wine snob and just leaves the wine. Caroline posts weekly YouTube videos where she shares practical wine tips and she has an online wine course called Everything You Need to Know About Wine. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Okay, so since we're talking about wine, the first thing I would love for you to do is imagine you're getting a beloved wine that maybe you've had um, you've had a, a few times maybe and could you just describe enjoying that glass? Oh, it's so hard. Everyone wants to always ask me about what my favorite wine is. That's not the question you asked, though. So, okay, let's see. <laughs> um, okay. Oh, if I could have anything right now, I would have some German Riesling from the Mosul Valley. It it smells like elderflower, apple juice, honeysuckle happiness. And it tastes like juice. It's pretty low alcohol. It's got a little bit of sugar. It is yummy. 
It is yummy. And it's one of the first wines. It actually is the first wine that I ever really was like, ooh, yeah, this is, this is good. Because when you're young and you drink crappy wine, as we do, you don't get those wine moments. But then once you start drinking good wine, I don't mean expensive wine, just good wine. You'll have a really good wine and you're like, damn, this is what it's about. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, so this that's great. Okay. So when we're young and we drink crappy wine, we're, we're doing it because, you know, maybe our friends are drinking and maybe we have like low budgets and uh, you're, you're originally from California. And so, yeah. right. Two buck Chuck, right? Yeah, for sure. But hey, two by chip tastes good. Yeah. Okay. It does. So, but it, it is a science project. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Um, it's okay. Two by chuck is the Big Mac of wine. It's cheap and it's delicious, but it's engineered to be delicious. Right. It is not a quality wine. Um, it is. There's a lot of of everything in there: chemicals, additives, thickeners, mm. coloring. Um. We don't know what's in there. There's really no legislation on wine additives. So except for sulfites, which is funny because they're like not the problem. And that is a little bit of a segue, but I love this. So the whole sulfite thing, sulfites are in everything. Mm -hmm. And if you can eat a raisin or a dried apricot, you're not allergic to sulfites, but people think they are because in the eighties, Strom Thurmond, who's like a famous right-wing nutbag in the eighties, the Senator, he was a teetotaler and he wanted to shit on the wine industry. And so he basically made this like fear campaign about sulfites. So some people have sulfite allergies. Very few people do. And it sucks to be them because sulfites are in everything. And they, um, they get like allergies, you know, like allergy stuff. Like they don't give you a headache. You got a headache because you drink too much. <laughs> but so, uh, yeah, sorry. There's my sulfite rant over. No, this is great <laughs> because sulfites and tannins are a huge thing for people who want their wine to be like organic and pure. And what, what I mean by thing is, uh, is, is they've heard from the other that's hanging yeah. out there that it's a bad thing. Okay. This is great knowing that it came from Strom Thurmond because all the people that I know who are against yeah. sulfites could wear the hat bleeding heart liberal. Yeah. They don't know what they're talking about though. It is total misinformation. Look, Good winemakers are using sulfites minimally, but sulfites exist in the atmosphere. They exist in us. They're inorganic salts. So sulfites uh, will be in every single wine ever, even if it's organic. And even if there's no sulfites added, there are very few wines that are zero sulfite added um, for the very basic reason that it's very difficult to make wine without sulfites. Uh, sulfites have been part of winemaking for, for thousands of years. They are basically, they're a preservative. They bind with oxygen. And they keep your wine from turning into vinegar. So even organic and natural wines, they do use sulfites. For the most part, they use very small quantities. But good winemakers are using small quantities of sulfites anyway. So, so sulfites are like, a, they're the boogeyman. They're not, you know, I'd be a lot worried about, about pesticides. I'd be a lot more worried about other shit that they're putting in mass-produced wine than I am about sulfites. The sulfite thing is just, it's just propaganda, honestly, at this point. It's, and it's annoying that it's still so pervasive. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know why we... We're still on that, but it's just one of those things like MSG, which is like also not a big deal, but right. had its moment in the 80s, right? Right. Um, tannins are are something that are a compound that are in the skin and the seeds of the grape. And so we get them on red wines because of the way the wine is made. And some people definitely can have allergic reactions to tannins. Um, often when people have a headache from red wine, it's because of histamines. 
Uh, and so that is, that is legit. But I think a lot of the time when you have a, a wine headache, it's probably because you didn't, you didn't drink water and you ate, didn't eat enough and you drank too much, you know, right, I mean, I'm right. in there, but if you drink better wine, you probably drink less of it if it's more expensive, mm-hmm. but also you, I mean, I, I think that the pesticides and all the other stuff that is nebulous, we don't even know mm-hmm. what's in there. That stuff is what, what worries me more than anything. So how do you know you're getting a good wine? Oh my God. I mean, you don't like that's, that's kind of part of the problem is there's no transparency. I think that the best way to shop for wine is to have a local wine shop because mm-hmm. that person that, you know, that's going to be an independent one. Ideally, if you have access to that, that's where you're going to get the best wine because those people are going to be buying wines from independent winemakers, from, from small wine producers. It's about scale. It's like anything. I mean, it really is. It's about sustainability and scale. It's, you cannot do anything very, very well if you're doing enough of it. If, if you're doing too much of it, your quality is going to drop, right? Right. And so scale and quality do, um, you know, they, they are opposite sides of the scale, right? So a small independent wine merchant is going to have small independent winemakers. So those are the people that are going to have um, lower intervention wines. I mean, there is a whole scene of natural wine, which is interesting because it doesn't really mean anything. Um, it, the first legislation on that term came about in France in April. So it's brand new legislation, but that's, that term has been around for a while. It means that they're using minimal sulfates. They should be organically farmed, handpicked, and they shouldn't be um, you know, doing... adding additives and stuff like that. But it's also like a scene. It's really hipster. It can be really alienating. Um, And some of those wines are, are actually faulty because they don't put enough sulfites in. And so the wine turns, you know, goes bad. Right. Right. Yeah. I worked for a nonprofit once and uh, we had to go through and test all the wines. It'd been a while. We stored them improperly in a hot room upright and uh somebody had the the foresight to say hey you know if we're gonna take this to our next gala maybe we should make sure this isn't vinegar so many of them had turned to vinegar there's this misconception that wine gets better as it gets older and some wines do but most of them don't really fascinating so what would so you go you go to your independent winemaker you get something and what would be a good your winemaker, uh, if you have a winemaker and you live in a wine region, that's even better, but, um, your local <laughs> wine shop. Yeah. Um, like how long could you expect it to last ballpark? God, I mean, I would say, no, but why are you keeping it? What's the point? Great question. You know, like buy what you're going to drink. If you have a place to keep it, which is a cool, dark place, a cellar, right. Mm-hmm. Or a wine fridge or, you know, a garage or whatever basement. Mm-hmm. If you have a cool, dark place to keep it and you uh, you want to, I, mean, I just don't know, like what, if you're buying in bulk, uh-huh. you know, sometimes from the winery, you buy a case or two. I would only do that if you have a place to keep it. If you don't have a place to keep it, don't bother. Um, keeping wine for aging is something that is, can be amazing. I mean, old wine is really interesting. It's really savory and weird, but like most normal people probably wouldn't even like it. Like it's uh-huh. weird. Uh-huh. It tastes different. Um, and the wines that are, you know, meant to age for 20, 30 years, those are really expensive wines. They're few and far between. Most wine is not like that. You know, there are wines that are, but they are very expensive. So most of the wine that you're going to get at the shop is ready to drink, Right. you know, drink it and it'll be okay for, for like a year or two. Maybe, you know, if it's a really light fruity white, that is not getting better. It's not going to get better. What's good about it is that it's fruity as the wine gets older, the fruit fades. 
and you know other aromas develop and some wines just uh, are not most wines are just not meant to age so I, I wouldn't really bother honestly yeah buy it drink it enjoy it now yeah, get more yeah. wine. <laughs> it's almost like uh, we got a couple of gift cards once. Somebody had wanted us to, they were thanking us, you know, so they got this these nice $50 gift cards, Visa, whatever. This is years ago. Legislation has changed and they've changed now. And we're like, we're going to save this for a rainy day. Well, when the rainy day came, the gift cards were meant to be used within a year. And after the year, they started incurring all these fees and there was literally nothing left on these gift cards. And so we had like two of these, we had a hundred bucks. We couldn't use it all. We could have got a couple bottles of wine for that yeah, <laughs> or whatever. Okay. Yeah, you can get loads of wine for that. No, I mean, it's it, absolutely. And I think the, the saddest thing to me is that the whole like co- wine collecting wolf of it's wolf of wall street bullshit. It is, it is dudes, rich dudes who collect were insider trading amongst themselves. Watch the movie Sour Grapes about some crazy wine fraud in the early 2000s. Like there, uh, it's amazing, it's a documentary, but there are, there basically were these people that were just kind of trading fancy wine back and forth and raising the prices. And this is trading it back and forth between Asia too in like early 2000s. And the prices just went insane. And they still are insane. It used to be possible to buy the best wines in the world and they would cost $100 in a restaurant. You know, now the best wines in the world cost thousands, ten thousands. I mean, ridiculous. To buy a bottle of wine to keep for 20 years, let's say I wanted to buy a bottle of wine to keep for 20 years, I would buy a bottle of very expensive Bordeaux. And the way Bordeaux works is that they actually go, they price the wines and start selling them before they're even in the bottle. So they have this really weird system in Bordeaux called Futures or On Premier where the journalists all come out in spring. They like flock to the chateau and the uh, the chateaus then, you know, are, are showing these barrel samples. So this is unfinished wine. It is undrinkable. It's disgusting. I've tasted it before. It is weird. It's so intense. It'll stain your teeth. It's not good. And the journalists taste these wines and then they release their, their notes and then the houses price their wines. And so this year they couldn't do that. Right. Oh, and then, and then people buy stuff in before it's even finished. And so you buy it before it's bottled, then it gets sent to you. And then you keep it in your cellar for 20 years before it's drinkable. Um, This year that didn't happen, of course, because of COVID. And so this year the journalists didn't get to taste or they were shipping uh, unfinished samples, barrel samples, which are super unstable. And so they couldn't really do it the way it used to be. And so the prices are 30, about 30% lower. And for the first time ever, I might actually buy some just because I think it'd be cool to have some really fancy wine to sit on for 20 years. Um, I'm at a place in my life where I actually have a cellar now for the first time ever. Uh, and, and, but the prices, so 30% lower than last year. And it's still like $300 a bottle for the really, really fancy ones for the, for the most expensive ones, 300, sorry, 300 euros. Wow. Bottle. Right. Yeah. Euros. That's important. Okay. I'm not going to be buying, I'm not going to be buying a <laughs> Mouton. Ah. <laughs> uh. Okay, we've covered a whole bunch of things. I didn't even think that oh, we would sorry. cover. No, this is great. I This is why I like to have conversations because we're discovering these things as we go. And I'm so glad that we got to touch on the sulfites and the tannins and we'll have links in the show notes to the documentary Sour Grapes. This is fantastic. I'm really enjoying um, where we're going with this. Okay, so, well, actually, one of the questions I thought of was, uh, what were some of the hidden things in the wine in this industry that you didn't expect as you got there? And you've kind of touched on a couple things already, but like, um, what comes up for you when I ask you that? I mean, it's an interesting question because I've always been in the wine industry. I got into wine when I was in college and I went into the wine business. 
So I'm 32 now. I've, I've been working in wine for my whole adult life. Um, so, I mean, I knew it was snobby. I guess when you're future and digging into ourselves, maybe you'd like to become a supporter. Email hello at michellelastly.com to get your sponsorship guide. Thank you for listening to this podcast. This is Michelle Lassley with Balance Shared, a space where I truly believe we are better together. winemakers or farmers you know it's like and the people that I work with here in France you know it's a woman and her brother and her dad and that's it and they make beautiful wine they've been making wine for generations it's not fancy but they they love their land and they love their wine and that is wonderful to me so there is this side of wine that is super snooty super super snobby and then there's like the wine itself and it's just it's just wine it's just a, a farmed product right it's right it's like your beautiful roasted potatoes. Yeah. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to uh, start backwards and move forward. It's private one-on-one. Individually, of course. Awesome. So uh, if people are listening to this later, um, where can they find the Generous Business Boost? Yep. So everything could be on my website, which is swag.shop. Oh, I love that. I love that you're able to utilize the, the new domain ending. Uh, and then they can find all of your beautiful swag, get in touch. You know, we had a conversation to discuss an event I'm planning, and I really appreciated all of your questions, which like on one hand, they like after you asked, it was like, well, duh, <laughs> but I had never thought of it at that moment. And so it was just really great to like kind of consider all of these things. And, um, and so, yes, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your knowledge. What's one final parting thing you would like